Welcome to the Maker Mag podcast, where we interview prolific people on the maker scene and get their insights on maker culture, working, and fundraising. This month's guest is Brad Feld, entrepreneur and co-founder of Techstars and venture capitalist at Boulder-based Foundry Group. Brad is also the author of numerous books relating to startups, including startup communities and venture deals. Before we continue, I would like to say that this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Blockstack which is working hard on bringing fundamental digital rights to all. To read stories of fellow makers working with Blockstack to build decentralized applications, go to blockstack.org forward slash makermag. That's blockstack.org forward slash makermag. Welcome to the podcast, Brad. Thanks, James. Happy to be here. Before we discuss your thoughts on startups and community building, I would love to start with an overview of your background as a founder and VC at Foundry Group and what inspired you to spend so much time thinking and writing about startup communities. Uh, I started my first company when I was in college uh, in the 1980s. Uh, It was a self-funded business that I started with uh, uh, a partner. Uh, we, We grew it. Uh, to about 20 people, sold it to a public company in 1993. I spent a couple of years working with that public company as they acquired a number of other companies and grew quite significantly. Um, During that time, between 94 and 96, I made about 40 angel investments, $25,000 to $50,000 investments with most of the money that I had made from selling that first company. And I accidentally ended up uh, working with a team at an organization called SoftBank uh, that then turned into a venture capital firm, uh, originally called SoftBank Technology Ventures, which was a spinoff from SoftBank. Ultimately, we renamed the firm to Mobius Venture Capital, uh, and that's how I got involved in venture capital. My wife, Amy, and I moved from Boston to Boulder in 1995 and have lived in Colorado since. Uh, in 2006, I co-founded Techstars uh, with David Cohen, David Brown, and Jared Polis. And in 2007, with uh, Jason Mendelson, Seth Levine, and Ryan McIntyre, started Foundry Group. Um, Seth, Ryan, Jason, and I had all worked together previously at Mobius. And that's been, that's been my work arc. So entrepreneur to angel investor to venture capital investor. And I've been fascinated and deeply involved since the mid 80s in creating and understanding how entrepreneurship works and and, uh, the development of companies. Well, the first question I have for you is when do you think people should consider turning a side project into a company? And when do you think is the right time where people should quit their jobs to pursue their company full time? Uh, A friend of mine, Laura Fitton, wrote a chapter in the very first book I wrote. It's called Do More Faster. It just came out in the second edition. I wrote it with David Cohen, one of the co-founders and co-CEOs of Techstars. And uh, she basically, made the the chapter she wrote made the assertion of, uh, you want to find an idea that you can't quit. So the moment at which you realize that the idea, uh, the business that you're playing around with, the product that you're playing around with is consuming all of your energy, uh, that's when you should go all in on that idea. Uh, my partners at Foundry Group and I like to look for uh, obsession in entrepreneurs. Uh, we like to describe it as they were put on this planet to work on the particular thing they were working on. And it's very different than passion. It's very easy for people to be passionate about what they're doing. It's more difficult to be obsessed about it. So I think that moment at which you flip into 
obsession, or as Laura likes to say, you can't quit the idea. Uh, that's the moment that you should uh, go after it. So when do you think is the right time for people to raise venture capital? Um, I mean, if you've quit your job to pursue your startup full time, when is it that you should seek to raise outside capital if it's even appropriate at all for you at that stage? Well, there's a big difference between raising outside capital and raising venture capital. So I, I make that distinction first. Uh, with regard to raising capital, I think especially today, there's this sense that once you get going, you need to go raise capital. And I, I think that's incorrect. Uh, I think your goal should be to raise the least amount of capital that you need to get to the next level of your business. And at the very beginning, that may mean no capital. Uh, instead of viewing raising capital as an achievement, view the capital as fuel for growing and scaling your business. And you know, every time you raise capital, you end up owning less of your company. Every time you raise capital, you have new partners involved or new owners of the business because the investors also now own a piece of your business. So they have you know, maybe a different view than you of what the dynamics are long-term. And as you raise additional rounds of capital, the stakes change in terms of what a potential outcome could be that would satisfy all the different shareholders in the business. So generally speaking, I think your goal as an entrepreneur should be to raise the least amount that you need to get to the next level. And you get to control both of those parameters. You get to control the amount that you need and what the definition of the next level is. And over the course of your business, if you can add fuel and capital to the business to accelerate your growth and the health of the business, then that's a good trigger for when you should raise more. Um, why do you think that founders are so interested in raising capital early stages when perhaps they don't need that money to kind of get started and start scaling their product and so on? Well, the capital dynamics ebb and flow. I mean, we're sitting here in 2019 talking about raising money when entrepreneurship is incredibly trendy and popular again, when the amount of capital available to invest in companies is very substantial at all stages. If you go back a mere decade to 2009, uh, we were just coming out of the global financial crisis, or maybe we were still in the global financial crisis. Uh, there was some venture capital activity going by 2009. If you wind the clock back to when we started Techstars in 2006, part of the reason we started Techstars was because there was uh, literally uh, no capital available at the seed stage for entrepreneurial companies. And the, uh, it wasn't that, I shouldn't say no capital, there was capital available, but you had to look really, really hard for it. And the idea of venture capital at the seed stage was almost non-existent. So, you know, the dynamic changes over time and it's important to recognize that the context matters a lot. Um, entrepreneurship today, is something that is well known around the world. In 2006, and, and you know, startup companies and how to create startup communities, well, well understood. 2006, 2007, 2008, not so much. So it's not a surprise that entrepreneurs feel like at the front end of the process, raising capital is uh, a crucial part because it's much more available and it's in their face all the time, right? Every time you listen to a podcast or read TechCrunch or go online and read about startups uh, or talk to your friends. It's, you know, capital, 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 capital. How much did you raise? How much is your company worth? Uh, and so 
over time, the idea that that is the key driver uh, of, of the company becomes more front and center. Now, I'm not dismissing the importance or value of raising capital or scaling your business, but the idea that that's the first thing that an entrepreneur should be focused on is a mistake. Yeah, I agree. Um, what are your thoughts on bootstrapping capital? Well, I'm a huge fan of bootstrapping. My first company was bootstrapped. Uh, we raised 10 bucks. We had 10 shares of stock. Uh, I had six, my partner had three, and my dad, who was an advisor to us, had one. And when we sold the company, we still had 10 shares of stock, and we never raised any more money. So that first company had to become profitable because that was all the money that we really had. Um, in the context of that, uh, it's useful to know that lots and lots of very successful companies have started off as bootstrap businesses. Many companies don't raise capital for a long time. Uh, and many venture-backed companies that are very successful um, really didn't raise capital at the beginning of their journey. And when they raised capital, they were later stage businesses that were already successful. And when they raised capital, that might've been for growth or it might've been to change the capital structure to give some liquidity to the founders. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so kind of pivoting here, um, Techstars has a strong culture around mentorship and you talk a lot about mentorship in your book, Startup Communities. Um, can you delve a little deeper into your thoughts on mentorship and the broader role they play in developing good and prosperous startup communities? Yeah, I believe mentorship is core to both the development of individuals uh, and the development of companies as well as leadership teams on startup communities and pretty much anything else. Uh, in Techstars, we have a philosophy we now call Give First, which is something that came out of this notion that I wrote about in Startup Community. It's called Give Before You Get. And the idea is if you can get everybody in the startup community giving first, putting energy into the system without having to define what they're going to get out of it, magical things can happen. Now, it's not philanthropy, it's not altruism. You expect to get something back, but you don't know when, from whom, over what time period, in what form, and in what magnitude. And so that, as it, at its core, becomes a, a guidepost for how to think about mentorship, where with mentorship, you're getting people who are experienced, and they're spending time and putting energy into other entrepreneurs who are either less experienced or inexperienced, and really helping guide them, um, not necessarily just as a teacher, not as an advisor, not with a predefined view of what they're going to get out the other end, um, but just in terms of putting energy into that system. When I reflect back on uh, the early parts of my uh, journey as an entrepreneur, uh, a number of our clients uh, became mentors uh, for me and, and for my business partner, Dave. These were typically experienced business people who took us under their wing. And in addition to having us as, having them as clients, they spent a lot of personal time with us, helping us think about our business, helping us evolve our business. And when I think about the most impactful uh, mentor that I've ever had, a fellow named Glenn Fassler, who is still an extremely close friend. He was uh, co-chairman of the company that bought my first company. Um, Len and I developed a relationship over many years that became what I call or refer to as peer mentorship. Uh, I was the mentee originally. He was the mentor originally. He put a huge amount of energy into my growth and development. And over time, he started to learn from me 
and we really started to learn from each other uh, through our journey and the creation of a couple of other companies past that first one that uh, had acquired mine, both through ups and downs. And we continue to learn from each other uh, all the way through life. So this, this mentor-mentee relationship evolves. And the, the ultimate characteristic of it is the one where both mentor and mentee are learning from each other on a continual basis. Two-way mentorship is indeed very important. Um, aside from that, what else makes for a good mentorship relationship? Um, and kind of, um, is it a good mentorship relationship formal? Is it informal? And what kind of environment is there around this uh, mentorship bond? Yeah, there's a lot of characteristics of a great mentor, uh, David Cohen, uh, from Techstars wrote something maybe six or seven years ago called the Techstars Mentor Manifesto, and I encourage people to take a look at it. Uh, it's a bunch of principles that talk about the different characteristics of how to be a great mentor. And there's a number of very important ones. For example, uh, the mentor doesn't have to be right. Uh, it's important that the mentor recognize that they're providing data to the mentee. They're not trying to provide direction or the answer. Uh, another is that a mentor should be uh, direct and honest, but at the same time, um, not get upset if the mentee decides not to follow the mentor's advice, which for a lot of people, especially uh, experienced leaders and entrepreneurs, is very difficult, right? If I give somebody advice and they don't follow it, that can be upsetting to me. But if you go back to this idea of you're providing data as a mentor, and that's the essence of what you're doing. It's up to the mentee to decide what to do. Um, and there's many, many other specific characteristics, but ultimately recognize that you're engaging in a relationship with someone to help them with their development and to help them with their journey, not necessarily as a mentor to validate yourself or validate your ideas. And it's a big challenge for a lot of people to get into that mode where they're really being a supporter rather than a director. In your book, Startup Communities, you talk um, a lot about what it takes to build a great startup community. And as you mentioned there, the importance of kind of developing a give it first mantra and kind of paying it forward. Um, what are your thoughts on the main culture components which are necessary to build a successful startup community? So mentorship, paying it forward, what else is there? So I'll distinguish between pay it forward and give first because they are very different. They're cousins, but I do want to make the distinction. Um, pay it forward is really linked to uh, a more uh, experienced person saying, uh, somebody helped me early on in my journey, so therefore I'm going to pay it forward by helping somebody else in their journey. That's very different because that tends to be a cause effect type relationship and it tends to be one where somebody's justifying their behavior based on something somebody else did for them. Again, it's a good thing, but it's very different than this give first frame of reference or this give first mentality where you approach your work and you approach your engagement with other people in a non-transactional way. So I just want to make that distinction. Um, in terms of uh, essential components uh, of a startup community, uh, in the book, Startup Community, I came up with what I called the four principles of the Boulder thesis. So four things that I had observed in Boulder, Colorado, that had created a very vibrant startup community in what is a relatively small town. Boulder is only about 100,000 people. And that 
that dynamic uh, was first and foremost, entrepreneurs have to be the leader of the startup community. It's not that other people can't play leadership roles, but the entrepreneurs themselves have to be leaders and there has to be a critical mass of them in the startup community. The second is that you have to have a long-term view and I like to say at least 20 years. And in fact, if you can have a long-term view on a go forward basis, so not just 20 years from you know, 2006 when we started Techstars, which would say that by 2026, our view was over, but a 20 year view from today. So 2019, we're thinking about 2039. You're constantly having this long-term view. Uh, the third is that you have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage at any level in the startup community. And the last is that you have to have activities and events that engage people continuously in entrepreneurship. So you want a huge number of things going on around entrepreneurship, so many that you feel almost super saturated. It's interesting that you talk about leadership, and I'd like to delve into that a little bit more. Um, so what do you think are the main character traits which are necessary for somebody to be a good leader of a startup community? And how should they kind of, how does one go from a member of a startup community to a leadership position? Well, you go from a, a membership to a leadership position simply by doing things. Um, there's no organizational hierarchy to a startup community. There's no president. There's no vice president of membership or vice president of education or vice president of finance. There's literally no hierarchy. It's just this network. And in a context of a network, the way that you increase your influence and power in a network is not just the number of people you're connected to, but the quality of information that goes across those connections. So what, you know, if you're a participant in a startup community and you're connected to lots and lots and lots of people, but you don't do much, you're not very impactful. If you're a participant in a startup community, but you're only really engaged with three or four people, you're not very impactful. You want to be engaged with a larger number of people, but you want the quality of that engagement and the amount of activity that that engagement uh, encompasses to be significant. The other thing to recognize is that the leaders of a startup community are not controlling the startup community. They're providing leadership for it. And in a lot of ways, ego attachment to being a leader is a problem. So you have lots of situations where people get self-satisfaction, self-justification, positive reinforcement by being recognized as leaders of particular things or by being identified as the leader of a particular thing. The best leaders are the ones who start stuff up, get stuff going, let somebody else take it over and then go on and start something else up and get it going and then let somebody take it over. They're constantly developing and evolving the startup community rather than grabbing onto a particular thing and saying, this is mine. I am the person who is in charge of this startup. One of the things our listeners um, are interested in hearing about is kind of this whole notion of building a startup that's successful outside of Silicon Valley. So can you tell us about your experience investing outside of Silicon Valley and tell us a bit more about how the entrepreneurship landscapes differ? Yeah, so I've invested... Uh, since I started investing as an angel investor in 1994 all across the U.S. 
I have invested a little bit internationally outside the U.S., but I, I won't say that I'm a particularly good individual investor outside the U.S. I haven't spent enough time uh, to feel uh, particularly effective in investing in Asia or Europe or other parts of the world. So I'm really just talking about the U.S., although the startup community activity that I've been involved in has been global. And Techstars itself today is very, very global, and there are lots and lots of investment activity that, that goes through Techstars all around the world. But my own experience as a, as a, as a venture investor has primarily been U.S.-based, but it's been all over the U.S. And I think there has been this long uh, mythology around uh, Silicon Valley or the Bay Area, but also around a couple of other geographies in the U.S., where there's a, a very significant and long arc of um, entrepreneurial ecosystem activity. And that would include Boston, probably now includes New York, uh, might include a place like Seattle. Um, but these regions where there's very, very large technology companies that have now become established, and as a result, there's a long arc of both uh, technology employment, but also new startups. Now, the interesting thing is the Bay Area is a phenomenal place and there's an incredible amount of startup activity over a long period of time. And when I say long period of time, I'm really talking about 100 years. So when people think about um, the development of the Bay Area or Silicon Valley, I like to call it the Bay Area more than Silicon Valley because it does include now San Francisco. Um, and I think Silicon Valley, well, it's, it's an interesting label. It's kind of become an archaic one in terms of uh, how the labeling works. Um, and by the way, you know, the startup community in Oakland is quite vibrant. And I'm not sure that people in Oakland would consider themselves part of Silicon Valley, although, you know, that's up to them. The interesting phenomena that you have is that a place like the Bay Area has lots of individual startup communities that cluster. And I've just listed a couple of cities, right? San Francisco, Oakland, um, you've got an area near Stanford, you know, draw a big concentric circle around that and sort of radiate out 10 mile radius, 20 mile radius. And that activity itself and how those startup communities develop don't look that different than how startup communities over a period of time have developed in places, whether it's Boulder or Chicago or Austin. Today, you see lots and lots of places in the U.S. where there's very, very vibrant startup communities, lots of significant companies being created, uh, lots of second and third generation entrepreneurial activities happening. And these startup communities might be, you know, 10 or 20 years into their journey rather than 100. So the level of density uh, of activity, the level of maturity, uh, the volume of the activity will be different. Um, but in some ways, the uh, opportunity is greater because you're in a community in a different place where you can actually be part of creating that startup community and part of creating the long arc history of what's going on versus merely being, you know, a founder that's, you know, hustling around trying to get a business started in a I use the word oversaturated again because I think it's a good one, oversaturated place like uh, the Bay Area. Now, that's not a negative on the Bay Area. Uh, again, it's, it's an amazing place, but I think this mythology that it's somehow so different uh, than what's happening in other parts of the U.S. and other parts of the world uh, is an error. 
if you take a very long-term view to the development of what's happening in those other geographies. On the same note, there are a lot of people speculating about where the next Silicon Valley or San Francisco will be. Um, where do you think the next Silicon Valley will be, or do you think that it will be decentralized around different areas in the U.S.? Um, I personally uh, don't think it's a good question. I couldn't, I couldn't care less. Um, I don't think that it's a, another place that emerges that looks like that. I think each startup community uh, should have as a goal of being the best that it is. And uh, every startup community is going to have unique characteristics, whether you're talking about uh, Boulder, Colorado, Denver, Colorado, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, Portland, Oregon. And people live in a place because they choose to. Um, there's a great word called topophilia. Uh, that um, uh, John Hickenlooper, who was governor of Colorado for eight years, uh, loved to use. He, uh, Hick is currently uh, running uh, for president in the Democratic primaries in the U.S., so he's becoming more visible uh, as a, a leader in government. And is a great, great, great governor in Colorado. And topophilia means literally love of place. And I think when people have topophilia, when they have love of place, they should focus on the place they live and on how to make the place they live great and not really worry so much about, is this going to be the next or where do we stack rank on the list of places this way? And so for people listening, like, I don't think it matters, you know, where the next quote Silicon Valley is. And in fact, I think that's a bad question because there shouldn't be a next Silicon Valley. There should be a next pick your startup community name and put a label on it. Interestingly, people used to call these startup communities as they were aspirational Silicon something, right? Silicon Beach was a label for uh, uh, Santa Monica and the LA area, Silicon Alley uh, was a label for New York City. Uh, Silicon Slopes for a while was labeled for Salt Lake City. That's just stupid. Uh, you know, cities have brand already. I mean, if somebody says Salt Lake City, it, it means something to everybody and it could mean more. And so people that are in the startup community in Salt Lake City should be using the brand of Salt Lake City to develop and evolve that place. I agree. And that's a very refreshing take there. And I think each city has its own culture to offer to entrepreneurs. And it's important to just think about each city as itself rather than whether or not it'd be the next Silicon Valley or San Francisco or New York or whatever else. Um, so we're starting to see groups like Product Hunt and Indie Hackers emerge as a place where people gather, share ideas and work together on companies online. What are your thoughts on building communities online and kind of how does the lessons that you've kind of uh, cultivated by writing startup communities apply to these broader online communities? Well, I think the online communities that uh, emerge today are uh, benefit from a long history of online communities that have gone back, you know, pre-commercial internet. If you go back and study history and people want to go see uh, uh, some early online community activity, um, uh, type uh, the well into Wikipedia and just sort of look around and poke around on some of the links that pop up um, or do a search on, on the well and read some of the historical articles about it. Um, the whole notion of bulletin board systems 
uh, and BBS's sort of community around that, that, that evolved, again, pre-commercial internet, uh, were very, very powerful. And what you have today is a world where people are uh, much more connected, uh, performance is much, much better. <laughs> Uh, video exists now, the software uh, and, and the, not just the tooling, but the application for, applications for building community are quite pervasive. You know, the ability to engage not just when you're sitting in front of a desktop computer, but, you know, on your, uh, on your, uh, on your phone or whatever we want to call, you know, an iPhone or an Android device these days. That sort of dynamic is one where it starts to really fit into your whole existence. And I think we're actually still several steps away from real immersion of this. If you read science fiction, you think about the dynamics. I don't think the logical extension necessarily of virtual reality, but this idea of continual uh, involvement and engagement in both the physical and virtual world, however that instantiates, uh, is a place where we're going, where 20 or 30 years from now, it'll feel very, very different than it does today in the same way than the way it does today feels very, very different than the way it did 30 years ago. So I think it's, I think it's very, very important and fascinating as a way of eliminating both geography, physical geography, um, as well as time in terms of making the interactions persistent. And then the flip side of it is, uh, it becomes very difficult for people who become parts of these communities to be able to start to segment out uh, the non-community aspects of their life uh, from their immersion in that community. So it's important to recognize that as humans, we do need some segmentation. We do have lots of different things that intersect with each other. And I would say for anybody who starts to find themselves completely consumed by one particular dimension to make sure that they're paying attention to what they actually want and need as individuals. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in your book, Startup Communities, you talk a lot about the feeders into startup communities, um, like accelerators and so on. Can you give us just a brief overview of who those feeders are and how they contribute to the development of a good startup community? Yeah, in startup communities, I labeled uh, two categories, feeders and leaders. I said entrepreneurs have to be leaders. Everybody else is a feeder. Um, in, I have a new book coming out. Uh, at the end of the year, uh, it's currently called the Startup Community Way, although we're considering renaming it to Startup Communities 2.0. We haven't made a final decision yet on what we're going to title it. And uh, in that book, we do a better job of, I have a, a co-author named Ian Hathaway, we do a better job of fixing something that I didn't do great in Startup Communities, which is, I shouldn't have called them feeders and leaders. I should have called them apples and oranges. Because what ended up happening is that people interpreted it as a pejorative or a one-up, one-down dynamic. The leaders were more important than the feeders. It's not true. They're both incredibly important. They just play different roles in the startup community. And the feeders were organizations like um, uh, academia, government, large companies, nonprofits, investors, service providers, sort of all of the non-entrepreneurial participants in the startup community. However, the feeders were all organizations, whereas the leaders were generally people. And I was trying to make the distinction between networks and hierarchies, where the startup community runs as a network, whereas all of these feeder organizations 
again, think about just academia and government for a second or big business, they act as hierarchies. Interestingly, there are people within those hierarchies that work for those feeder organizations that can play leadership roles in the startup community. So back to this distinction between people and organizations where the entrepreneurs and participants in the feeder organizations, individual people can play leadership roles. And the feeder organizations themselves have a very important role to play, but they can't be the leaders of the startup community. They can't try to organize and control it. And that was the point I was trying to get to, and hopefully the second book will do it better. Yeah, it's a very interesting analogy for sure. Um, so for people who maybe don't have a well-developed local startup community, what is the best way for them to engage entrepreneurs and kind of take a leadership role and start to build their community from the ground up? Well, same, same thing I said a, a little bit ago. I think you just start doing stuff. Go find some other entrepreneurs. Go find some other people who want to play leadership roles in the startup community. Um, uh, and, and start doing things. And those things are pretty well defined at this point, right? <clears throat> in 2006, 2007, you know, the idea of a weekly open coffee club where everybody could show up at a coffee restaurant that was interested, you know, in, in startup community uh, and in entrepreneurship and just hang out for a couple of hours. Like that was a unique idea. And that's a canonical weekly event now in many, many places. You know, the idea of topic-based meetups uh, was, was a new idea, but the idea of having a meetup once a month um, around a particular topic or category uh, in the startup community now fairly common. Um, many, many, many uh, cities now have uh, accelerators and really engaging and participating in the accelerator figuring out how to get uh, engaged with uh, running startup weekends. Uh, another thing that was, you know, brand new in 2007 that now is ubiquitous around the world, you know, simulation of entrepreneurship for a weekend for 54 hours for a group of people that are interested in getting together and just in a very intense way, uh, having a startup weekend and creating some companies. Experienced entrepreneurs in the startup community being visible um, and making themselves accessible, having office hours for other entrepreneurs and making themselves available um, in the 2007 to 2010 timeframe or 2006 to 2010 timeframe. I regularly did what I called random days once a month where I'd meet with anybody for 15 minutes and I just put an online scheduler up and people filled in their slots and showed up in my office and I said the next 15 minutes of my life belong to you and I did that you know 10 to 15 times a day once a month and some amazing things came out of it it's it's well known for example that my very first meeting with uh, David Cohen at Techstars uh, came from a random day and that's not where the idea of Techstars came but that's where David and my involvement together in Techstars emerged from so there, there's a handful of, of quick hit ideas and Frankly, if you grab a copy of Startup Community, the Startup Communities, there's probably uh, 20 or 30 examples of things that you can do uh, early on in the life of a startup community to really get things going. That's really interesting. Um, and I think that's a good place to close. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? My uh, primary blog is just at feld.com, F-E-L-D.com. I try to blog five days a week. Not every day, I'm not obsessed about it, but uh, pretty regularly. 
And I write about all kinds of different things, both personal and professional. So that's a good place. Uh, I do have a Twitter feed at Befeld. I tend to broadcast more than engage, but when I see things that are interesting to me, I, I broadcast them. Uh, my email is just brad at felt.com. I try to respond to all the email that I get, but I would suggest that people uh, start with the punchline. Don't send me a long explanation of what you want to talk about, but just I'd love to talk to you about blah, 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 or I've got a question for you, blah, 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 blah. Like those are the best ways to engage with me. All right. Thanks for joining us on the Maker Mag podcast, Brad. My pleasure, James. Thanks for having me.